Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. <clears throat> Could you maybe at some point just like curse or say something completely Looney Tunes or offensive? The other guy used to do that and it just made this whole thing a little funnier. I'm just trying to work with you here. We're live in three, two... Welcome back. I'm joined now by a man some people believe is the President of the United States, Joseph Robinette Biden. Robinette? Yes. Oh. Don't even have to write a joke about that. Um, Joe, can I call you Joe? No. Girl, we have a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. As the coronavirus continues to wreak havoc, Americans are getting restless and frustrated, if you know what I mean. One of the disappointments when we came into office is the circumstance relating to how the administration was handling COVID was even more dire than we thought. We thought they indicated there was a lot more vaccine available, and it didn't turn out to be the case. Because we're doing so much testing. Huh? Oh. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I must have fallen a- <gasps> You don't ask Biden tough questions. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You know, I'm still having flashbacks. <laughs> So we're pushing as hard as we can to get more vaccine manufactured. You now say we'll have enough supply for every adult to be vaccinated by May. Does this mean I can go to Cancun for spring break with Ted Cruz and the gals? Well, I didn't say that. Mr. Biden, bring my vaccine. Keep me protected from COVID-19. The trick to how I'm a Moderna. Fix of that magic Pfizer or Moderna. Biden, give me a poke. They call you sleepy, but you're pretty woke. I'm so tired of quarantine. Mr. Biden, bring my vaccine. Please bring me change. The Robinettes. Oh, won't you stay? Please. I'm numb. My hat. Please. Oh, I. I see. I love please. Mr. Biden. Yes. Bring my vaccine. I want to trick or treat when we hit Halloween. Give me that double dose and make me go out cheap. So I can plan a kiss on Dr. Fauci. Oh, Mr. Biden. To watch, girl, I'm so tired of quarantine. Mr. Biden, bring us, please, 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 Mr. Biden, bring my bags. Just one tiny break so we can freaking leave the house. And that was Randy Rainbow, apparently still waiting on his vaccine and likely on his stimulus check too a feature of Broadway Records. And coming up next, the Arts Express Hot Seat, with our guest today taking a seat, New York Times columnist Charles Blow, delving into his new bestseller, The Devil You Know, a Black Power Manifesto, in which Blow puts forth his premise that the cure for racism is not to challenge the political system and do away with the ills of capitalism, but rather to change or address and urging African Americans to return to the South in a reverse migration for a better quality of life and free of racism up North. Now, while it may be true that the cost of living is lower in the South, racism may be another matter. And Blow espousing geography as destiny, as opposed to, say, that elephant in the room, politics and class oppression a source of racism in dividing Americans economically. 
Blow also talks about how his experience at the New York Times may have influenced his views. Quote, The myth-busting that had to go into some of that coverage, yes, my column at the New York Times, absolutely fed and probably gave birth to this book. Here's Charles Blow. Hello, how are you? Hi. What inspired you to write The Devil You Know, A Black Power Manifesto? And why now, both politically and for you personally? Well, I think inspiration um, comes from being witness to activism uh, over the last, you know, recent uh, few years and covering it, but also seeing the intransigence of racism in this moment and also knowing the intransigence of racism over the the history of America, it doesn't change much. It kind of uh, transforms itself into more elegant form. And looking for a way that you could have a solution to a problem that did not require the centering of whiteness and white people, but rather was something that black people could do on their own to access power over many of the things that they cared most about. And please explain who may be the devil you know in the title of your book. Well, it comes from a line in the book in which I say that uh, uh, with the Great Migration, people leaving the rural South Florida city to the north and west, that they traded the devil they knew for the devil they didn't, only to come to the painful realization that the devil is the devil, that uh, racism behaves the way, the way racism behaves, and it is not necessarily sectoral but it is, uh, or, or regional or geographic in any way, but rather uh, is a function, or is expressed as a function of proximity and scale. As soon as you put large numbers of black people in proximity to whiteness, that whiteness behaves pretty much the same way in, uh, in America. Mm. And do you feel you've drawn anything from your experience at the New York Times that has informed you and this work in terms of political insights? Well, it, when I was writing the book, it, it, it kept on me that I had basically been writing this book um, the entire time I'd been writing the column cause, because I was drawing on a lot of that experience, whether it was uh, interviews with uh, mothers of the movement or uh, coverage of social justice issues and the data around those issues and the myth-busting that had to go into some of that coverage. Uh, so yes, the column at the New York Times uh, absolutely fed and probably gave birth to this book. Now what about the experience of returning to the South to live for you as well as others you may have spoken to, conscious of its massively blood-stained race history there from slavery and beyond? Well, uh, well, first I returned in a pandemic, so everything's changed. Uh, it's really hard to gauge things in a pandemic. But I, but I will say this, though. Uh, we talk about race history in the South, but we don't talk as much about race present in cities in the North and West. Uh, we, we don't talk about the fact that if you look at uh, incarceration rates per capita of black people that at the top of those lists are liberal states in the North and West, that Vermont incarcerates more of its black men than any state in the country. We don't talk about the fact that San Francisco, one of the most liberal cities in America, incarcerates more black men uh, than any other large metropolitan city in America. That's race present. We get so hung up on what was we look over what is you know the 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 uh, uh, black on uh, the black poverty rate in New York City is higher than the black poverty rate in Mississippi. That's somehow we overlooked that. And speaking of poverty rates, what would you say about class differences when it comes to actually engaging in reverse migration? and that it may be more difficult or even impossible for black people living in poverty, 25% of the population nationally, more than 50% of homeless families are black, and nearly half of the homeless population is black. What about those people engaging in reverse migration? 
uh, migration has never been a luxurious experience in this country. When people moved during the Dust Bowl, they didn't move because it was luxurious. They moved out of necessity and the, and the uh, potential of, of gain. When people moved during the Gold Rush, that wasn't a luxurious experience. When people moved during the first wave of the Great Migration, many of them only had what they could carry in a suitcase. And in none of those situations did people know exactly where they were going, exactly what they were going to get when they got there. There was no infrastructure around it. It was, it was not a luxurious experience reserved for the wealthy. It's always been true. But what about in terms of finding jobs or places to live when you come essentially with nothing? Well, I'm going to say I'm going to say a couple of things. One is uh, the the black middle class is thriving in the south. Uh, when you look uh, when Forbes does a list of where black middle class is thriving, half of that list is southern cities. When you look at where black uh, owned businesses are most heavily concentrated, the southeast is the number one reason for that. When you look at uh, where uh, median family incomes have risen, the, the south does incredibly well on that list. When you look at uh, as an MIT professor did look at Real, real wage growth for the last 30 years, much of that, uh, this, uh, even among people without college degrees, the South stacks up incredibly well on that metric. Uh, the idea that there's nowhere to make a living, that just doesn't make any sense because the data doesn't support that. And, and, and I say to black people, juxtapose that to the poverty rate in New York City or 40% in Detroit. Or in the 30s in, in, in Chicago. And that means that that is a, somehow a better living condition for you. And what have been the reactions you may have observed around you in the South now to reverse migration? Because there are many of the people of those people who stormed the Capitol with Confederate flags. Yes. So there, there is a, that is another misconception around racism, that it is a, a, a Southern... Uh, uh, condition and that all of you from south in fact well i don't know what i mean uh, is what i mean is that it predominates their people running around with the confederate flags more than say new york city (laughs) well well i'm going to knock down that myth again because i was trying to do it before uh when you look at the growth of uh of uh hate groups the clan which is most heavily associated with the south is shrunk down to almost nothing what has risen is Kind of, uh, neo-nationalist and um, uh, fascist groups. Those groups are not predominated in the South. There, there are other places in the South. If you look at the Proud Boys, that is a that the, one of the founders is from Brooklyn. But we don't. But we still have in our heads that this is all a Southern phenomenon. Well, but a large percentage of the people running around storming the Capitol were from the how South. You, how do you know that? How do you know that? Because of I've been looking at the arrest records and where they're from. The arrest records? They're all from the South? No, not all, but a, a great percentage are. I would say this, that, 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 that racism is not confined to the South. When I look at the data about racism, uh, they did a study on where people look for racism terms. This is what you can do in your house when nobody knows. The South was not on the top of that list. It was it stretched the, the, the region that, that was predominated stretched up into the northeast into New York. When I asked the people at the project uh, implicit to look at racial data, project implicit are hundreds of thousands of tests on implicit bias. Pro white, anti black implicit bias. I told them to cut their data for me by region and by race. They found that there was absolutely no difference between the amount of pro-white, anti-black bias between people living in the white people living in the South and those living in the Northeast and the Midwest. What the data show. And any last word on The Devil You Know and how you may intend for your book to be different in any way for black readers as opposed to white readers? I'm specifically writing a book to young black people who are prone to move. So anyone else who enjoys the book, I am happy that you enjoy it. But my target audience is young black people who might be interested in moving. And are you working on anything next? Oh, I I never do it that way.
Oh, okay. I mean, I, I, I you, what you, you're, you're finished the book, it's like, you know, you, you survived a, a trial. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much, Charles Blow, for calling into our show, and I will get the word out. Thank you. And The Devil You Know is published by HarperCollins. And now on Ars Express. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. Derek Del Gordio is a troubled and troubling man. Fortunately for the rest of us, Derek has decided to share his discomfort with us. I first saw his groundbreaking one-man show in and of itself several years ago, and it has recently been turned into a film directed by Frank Oz. And now, Del Gordio has also come out with a book this month which covers some of the same territory as the play and film called Amoral Man, A True Story and Other Lies. Amoral Man. Now that's all without spaces in between, so it's ambiguous whether it should be read a moral man or a moral man. Yes, there's nothing that Derek Del Gordio likes more than propagating ambiguities. Well, let's start off with the play and film in and of itself. Del Gordio opens his performance of both the play and the film with the story of the elephant and the six blind men. And you probably know that story, that parable. You probably came across it before. It's, if you'll remember, six blind men touch different parts of an elephant trying to decide what an elephant is. So one blind man touches the leg and says, Ah, oh, I got it. Yes, the, the, the elephant is a tree trunk. And uh, the other blind man says, No, 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 because he's touching the side of the elephant. He says, No, 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 no. The elephant is like a wall, a thick wall. And then another blind man says, no, you're all wrong. An elephant is like a stringy rope because he's touching the tail. And then another blind man is saying, no, 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 no. I know what an elephant is. An elephant is like a thick snake as he grabs hold of the elephant's trunk. So of course, it's a parable about our limited understanding of reality. Each blind person is limited. We're all limited in what we see as reality. We all have our point of view, our point of observation, and we all have our limitations. But Derek asked the question which no one seems to ask about this parable. How does the elephant feel about all this? How does the elephant feel about being defined by blind men? Because the elephant and Derek and all of us we can't see ourselves. We have to rely on the definitions of others, partly at least, for our identities. But then how do we know what we really are? How do we know that we aren't being deceived or deceiving ourselves? And the question is particularly haunting for Del Gaudio, because you see, Derek Del Gaudio makes his living by deceiving others, both as a magician a sleight-of-hand expert, and as a for-hire card shark whose livelihood depends on two things, deceiving people and manipulating their sense of reality. In other words, he's a liar. And that's sort of the deal that the stage or close-up performer of magic makes with the audience. I'm going to use means of deception, I'm going to lie to you, but I'm telling you up front, I'm a liar. As the magician Carl Germain once said, we magicians are honest liars. We tell you we're going to deceive you, and then we do. And in a sense, isn't that what all artists are? The famous theater director, Harold Klerman, entitled his autobiography, Lies Like Truth. Yeah, that's really about the agreement that we make about art. Art is a deal that the audience makes with the artist to be lied to, lies like truth, for a known, agreed-upon purpose, even if that purpose is only entertainment. And of course, the lies must not hurt or be exploitative. 
And in that lie, the artist paradoxically reveals aspects of truth about the world. Right now, I'm on the radio, but really, what seems to be a reality for you right now is a totally constructed truth. First, I'm not really in that little box you're listening to. I'm not even in the studio right now as you're listening to me. Do you know what I look like? Uh, It's probably best if I look like whatever is in your imagination right now. It's all a con. If the medium is the message, I have to admit that I was skeptical that Del Gordio's in-person performance could be translated into filmic terms. And I'm happy to say I was wrong. Frank Oz directed both Del Gordio's theatrical piece and the film, and he has done one of the best transfers of any play into a film that I've ever experienced. I had seen in and of itself at a small theater off-Broadway when it first came out, and I was hugely affected by it. I was actually afraid to see the film because I was afraid that the film would sour my good memories of the play. Because the play is self-consciously, and I don't use that word in a negative way here, but self-consciously about the meeting of Derek Del Gordio with the audience. We're each trying to size each other up, each trying to stamp the other with some kind of identity. At one point during the play, during the end, Derek has a very intimate moment, almost spiritual, with each member of the audience where he appears to look into their very hearts and souls and both divines and declares their identities. Every night the results of the play are different, almost like an improvisation. So how do you turn that into a film? I thought it couldn't possibly be done, but Frank Oz and Derek Del Gaudio have ingeniously made a film that really does credit to that experience. What the film does seamlessly is that at the crucial points of audience engagement, the film cuts to many different audience members from different nights of the run of the play, one after the other at the same point in the play. So watching the film, we get to see a cross-section of the variety of responses from each night. It's a daring hybrid cross between a play and a film. And as a bonus, the camera is able to come in close to Del Gaudio as he makes his final revelations and as he and his audience together find out something about our own identities, blind as we are. In Del Gaudio's new book, A Moral Man, he's concerned with another aspect of deception. What if, like Del Gaudio, you're so conversant with the skills and technology of deception, but you don't tell the audience that you're going to lie to them. You don't make that deal with them, either explicitly or implicitly. Specifically, in Del Gordio's case, in his book, A Moral Man, Del Gordio tells of his experiences over a period of months as a crooked card dealer in a high-stakes private poker game. He begins A Moral Man in a similar way to the way he begins In and of Itself, with a famous parable which he then pushes further. In A Moral Man, he starts off with Plato's Parable of the Cave. Well, you probably remember that one too. In Derek's version, there are a group of people chained inside of a cave who watch the shadows of animals and other beings on the walls. They can see nothing else, so they think that that is reality, but one of the prisoners escapes and he sees what the actual situation is. He sees there's a puppeteer with fire, and there are cutouts in the shapes of animals projecting the shadows of the cutouts through a hole onto the cave wall. So the escaped prisoner runs back into the cave to tell the others what he's seen. Guys, guys, you know, it's th- those are just shadows you're seeing, and, and they're being thrown onto the wall from the outside by this other guy, this puppeteer. But the other prisoners can't understand him. They don't have any desire to understand or to be freed. And as Plato tells it, it's a metaphor for human existence. We never know what actually is. We can only see some shadow of reality from our constrained viewpoints. But once again, Del Gordio upends the parable. He asks the question that no one asks. Who is this mad puppeteer who controls the shadows who set up such a mind-messing system in the first place? What's the puppeteer's motive? 
When Delgorio took the job of a cheating poker dealer, he had questions about doing it, but the moral ethics of cheating people out of their money was not the ethical breach that most disturbed Delgorio. It wasn't so much the fleecing of some rich guys that bothered him, but his realization that he was manipulating the other person's sense of reality that made him feel guilty. He asked, does one have the right to twist someone's very grasp of reality non-consensually? The players around the table had no idea that Del Gordio, as a poker dealer, was in cahoots with the organizer of the game and was capable of the most invisible sleight of hand to manipulate who got what cards. But the most interesting part of the book is the coda where Del Gordio looks back on the whole experience and realizes that he was manipulated as much as everybody else at that card table he thought he was manipulating. From his recruitment, to his high-risk cheating, to his ultimate payout, somebody else had written an elaborate show that he had no idea that he was part of. Somebody was his puppeteer. Well, maybe because we're so insecure about what reality is, is the reason why that in so many works of art, the artist seeks to reproduce a version of reality as they see it. But why is it that the actor who was proclaimed the epitome of realness in one era, for example, the 19th century actor Edwin Booth, seems extremely mannered when you hear recordings of him? What is it that changed? What aspect of reality that we recognize now did Edwin Booth fail to capture? But let's ask further, why do we appreciate the appearance of what we recognize as reality in art? What's the obsession with what is termed verisimilitude, the appearance of truth, the real thing, as playwright Tom Stoppard named it? Why do we get a kick out of trying to reproduce the real thing? That obsession with the actor representing truth goes back a long time. Even Shakespeare has Hamlet giving advice to the local troupe of actors. Or step not the modesty of nature, for anything so overdone is from the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is, to hold as twere the mirror up to nature. But it's not just the stage actor that has to learn verisimilitude, but most importantly, those who act in real life and whose missteps can easily result in bodily harm. So spies, informants, undercover cops, and con men. They have to seem real. They can't afford to slip up. No abstract art for them. They have to figure out what reality is for other human beings and perform that. Derek Del Gordio, as a cheating poker dealer, is forced to perform reality convincingly, or he has a good chance of getting his knees broken. His book, A Moral Man, I think is a bit less successful than in and of itself, both play and movie. Despite the similarities in theme, simply because Del Gordio at this point is a better performer than writer. And in the book, he doesn't have the huge advantage of Frank Oz directing. But I think the book will be intriguing for many, especially if you're a fan of big con movies like David Mamet's House of Games or Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Del Gordio is exploring some similar territory, but he also dives beneath that surface to ask more existential questions. Derek Del Gordio got trouble, my friends, with a capital T, and that rhymes with C, and that stands for con. I've been talking about Derek Del Gordio's play and movie in and of itself. The film is available now on Hulu, and I highly recommend it. And the book A Moral Man, A True Story and Other Lies, also by Del Gordio, is a fun read. I think you'll enjoy it. Published by Alfred Knopf. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller.
And coming up next on the show, comedian, actress, advocate, and multi-Emmy and Grammy nominee Margaret Cho in a conversation about her most recent multitasking extreme endeavors lately, including a virtual stage performance and starring roles in the animated musical Over the Moon and the upcoming Highland, described as a woman recently released from court-ordered drug rehab who moves back in with her family, running a marijuana dispensary. Cho also addresses the alarming rise in anti-Asian racism lately and her no-laughing-matter approach to staying funny and mining comedy during this pandemic crisis. First, some scenes from Over the Moon, then Margaret Cho. Mooncakes. Check. Bungee cords? Check. We have bungee? Check. Hey, we got company tonight, so don't be late. Fly away. Wish I had the wings to take me high away. Mama used to tell me stories of the moon goddess. She's on the moon waiting for her one and only true love. (laughs) It's just a silly myth. It's not a silly myth. It's real. Right, Papa? Uh... Grandpa's diapers! It's a long flight. Ew! Hi, I'm Gobi. What's your name? I'm Feifei. I'm keeping these sweet moon pants. Dig it. Taking us. What in the world? Come on, she's expecting you! She's nothing like Mama said she'd be. I announce a competition! Anyone who helps me bring my one true love back will get their wish granted. If you do it first, I'll get you home. Oh, oh, can I help? No. Please? No. Please. Let me finish. Okay, okay, just stop making that noise. Besties forever, uh, forever. Uh, 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 uh. Hi, I'm Kobe. Rad, I'm Chip. Double Rad. I wonder if I'll run into anyone else. Hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning, thank you. All right, so what have you been up to lately in your very prolific life? Um, well, I have not been touring because of the pandemic, of course, so I adopted two cats. So oh. now I have three uh, pets, three do- a, t- a dog and two cats, and um, one is deaf. So the other one is like her um, interpreter, and they're very beautiful, and they're really, they're all, all over me right now. I've never had cats before, so this is very incredible. Um, animals have been a great part of this entire thing. Animals are so healing, and so I'm glad to have them. And what about your work? Oh, that. Oh, that. Oh, well, I'm doing the, like quite a lot of like live um, shows. I'm doing a lot of, um, well, I'm, I'm doing a um, live stream show at uh, um, rushkicks.com, which is going to be an after-hours, all sorts of sex advice and relationship advice, and I'm going to have on some experts and also other comedians, and so I'm really thrilled about that. Um, So mostly, like, you know, this time has been really being able to use my voice. Like, I have um, a film out called Over the Moon, which is the first Asian-American and big animated feature that got nominated for a Golden Globe. Yeah. And um, that's on Netflix. And so there's a lot of, like, voice stuff and live stream stuff, which I'm really grateful for. So that's really fun. And what would you say your latest venture, your show, is bringing to the table that's new and different for you? I think it's really taking all of the things that I've learned about um, sexuality and relationships and bringing that into um, a comedy comedy setting, which I think is something I've always done, but now I have a lot more experience, and I've worked on um, the board of a sex toy company, Good Vibrations, and I've been in lots of different kinds of 
relationships that I can speak to. And um, I've had a romance and sex TV show on um, TLC. So these are things that I can draw from. And I want to I want to sort of take over sort of that Dr. Bruce, Dr. Joyce Brothers kind of place, which uh-huh. I, I feel really qualified for. Yeah. And how do you go about creating comedy during this especially chaotic crisis moment in time with the pandemic and economically? And what thin line do you walk between cheering people up while not trivializing the current reality? Well, it's really like something that comedy is about coping and laughter is something that we can use because laughing is really about hope. And when you can really understand that, I feel like that's really important. Also, you know, being able to use this platform and using online resources to change things has been really valuable. I was able to um, do a lot of campaigning for the Biden-Harris campaign online, especially to the Asian-American community, which I think is really, we're having a hard time because we're seeing a huge rise in hate crimes against Asians all over the world, basically because of this virus which we're blamed, being blamed for, for I don't know why, it's a really terrible situation. And so, you know, to be able to bring some attention to that and to be able to have hope about it is really what my message is. Mm. And speaking of which, one of the issues that's not new but has deepened during the pandemic is racism and attacks here against anyone Asian who is perceived as Chinese, with China being blamed by some for the virus. What are your thoughts about that? And have you yourself been a victim of this increased anti-Asian racism? I haven't experienced it personally just because I really don't go outside. I mean, I, <laughs> like, I kind of am very, very paranoid. Um, but I'm worried about my parents. My parents just got the vaccine. Mm. But, you know, a lot of the attacks have been happening against the elderly. Um, um, you know, people who just physically cannot defend themselves, you know, and that's yeah. really scary. So I think that, um, and it's a strange thing because people understand that we're not the, no, there, nobody is really in, um, at fault when it comes to a pandemic. It's really a collective thing that happens. You know, it's, it's, it's a biological disaster. It has nothing to do with race or culture or whatever. It's really, uh, ignorant thing that people are but i think people feel so angry that they don't know how to place their anger and and it doesn't help when you have things out there like called the calling it the kung flu or the china virus as um trump was doing it's it's a really negative thing so i feel like it's it's something that we have to face and so i'm definitely doing a lot of writing about it and um trying to figure out how to come to terms with it i feel like you know, um, as Dave Chappelle was really speaking towards George, George Floyd and, and um, BLM, Black Lives Matter, over the summer, this is the same kind of thing where we need the comedian to really assess what's going on. And do you find your humor and approach to comedy changing in any way from when you were younger? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think I just know more. I think that when you get into your 50s, you hit a stride as an artist, which I... I'm really grateful for, and also, like, there's just a different climate. So socially, it's different. Um, we have a lot more accountability as um, artists and um, people who speak in the public or in the public eye, you know, and I think that's really great. Um, a lot of comedians don't like this idea of cancel culture, but I think having that accountability and really knowing who people are is really valuable. And what can you say about Highland as a very personal project described as a woman recently released from court-ordered drug rehab who moves in with her family who run a marijuana dispensary? (laughs) I didn't know. Well, we made the pilot, which was amazing. But unfortunately, it kind of all got caught up in the mix and we didn't end up uh, shooting to series. So we just went with the pilot. But then I feel like now, um, I'm working on a new project. I'm working on a couple new projects, and so hopefully it'll sort of, like, be happening. I'm doing a, um, some movies and some TV shows that I've just shot, which is very different to be filming um, during a pandemic, but I'm really glad that'll be out 
at some point. I can't really talk about it yet, but that those are all sort of things that are happening under underneath all these COVID regulations, and so we'll see that too. And when Margaret Cho looks in the mirror, what does she see? Um, I see a very well-preserved 52-year-old lady, which I'm really <laughs> well glad. Uh-huh. You know, I'm finally appreciating um, where I'm at physically. It, it's taken a lifetime. And so, you know, coming out of the 90s and really having the sense of, like, um, not having other Asian Americans around. And now I'm seeing a lot more Asian American faces on television and in the movies. And so it's great to have the company. And one of the most striking things you've said, quote, being called ugly and fat and disgusting to look at from the time I could barely understand what the words meant has scarred me so deep inside that I have learned to hunt, stalk, claim, own, and defend my own loveliness. What can you say about that? And has anything changed in terms of your feelings for those words since you first said them? I think it's like I just fondly appreciated being beautiful and that we have to claim our own beauty for ourselves. And um, your beauty can be like a rumor that you spread about yourself. And that's a really important lesson. Um, I just never believed in myself. And so always like when I was in school, I would always make friends with the prettiest girl in school, and I would be like her legal representation. (laughs) So if anybody wanted to talk to her, they could talk to me first. And so, like, I was like their agent. And now I'm like, oh, I can be my own agent, and I can be definitely there for myself and and feel good. And any last word about your show? Well, I have so much knowledge that I want to really – give out and also have a good time because it's something that used to sort of like um, berate you if you're not in a relationship or make you feel like you should be in a happier relationship. And all these things are just social constructs to make us buy more chocolate or whatever it is and um, chocolate and lingerie. But really, we don't need any of those things. I think we just need to have fun being together and not have a sense of judging it. So that's what the show's about. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, Margaret Cho, for calling into our show. Thank you. And Over the Moon is out now on Netflix. And we'll go out now on Arts Express with the Poetry Corner and a selection of readings from African-American women poets Sonia Sanchez and Lucille Clifton, read by Tyler Simone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Tyler Simone. Reading in Black is all about poetry. Not only do I like to highlight black authors, but I also like to highlight black poets. And sometimes poets are also authors and authors are also poets. But today I'm going to be talking about black poets whose main thing has been poetry most of their lives. So hopefully you walk away kind of learning something new and maybe you'll fall in love with them just as much as I love them. The first being Sonia Sanchez, who was a leading figure in the black arts movement that happened between the 1960s and the 1970s. She was also a leading figure in the civil rights movement. She's always kind of wrote poems that were geared towards the African-American audience. And she's really well known for the rhythms that are present in her poetry and infusing her poetry with musical aspects like jazz, for example. Not only is she a poet, but she's also a writer, a professor, an activist, and a proud black feminist. Oh, I also forgot to mention, not only am I gonna introduce you to black poets, but I'm also going to read a few of their poems to you. Another poet that we're gonna be talking about today is Lucille Clifton, the one and only. I've talked about her before on my channel, I'm pretty sure. I've also talked about her on my bookstagram. I like her because her poems are straightforward. I can visualize what she's talking about. I connect to her because a lot of her poetry is creating positives out of negative stereotypes about the black body, about black people, and about black women specifically. So I love that about her. And I love watching her speak. I love watching her perform her poetry. Sonia and Lucille are our OG poets. They're a little bit older, a little bit more vintage, more classic. 
So to start off with, I'm gonna read a few poems from Sonia's poem book called Shake Loose My Skin. I got this in a small bookstore in North Carolina and I will always hold it so close to my heart. It's hard to choose, oh my goodness. Okay, since she's very well known for her haikus, I'm gonna read one of those first. It says, if I had known, if I had known you, I would have left my love at home. Haikus are so simple. They're very straightforward and that's my kind of poetry. I know that with poems, you're supposed to infer what you want to infer and visualize what you want to visualize and poems mean different things to everyone, but I love a good short poem. This poem is called A Poem for My Father. How sad it must be to love so many women, to need so many black perfumed bodies weeping underneath you. When I remember all those nights, I filled my mind with long wars between short-sighted Trojans and Greeks while you slapped some wide hips about in your private dungeon. When I remember your deformity, I wanna do something about your makeshift manhood. I guess that is why on meeting your sixth wife, I cross myself with her confessionals. This poem is called Blues. In the night, in my half hour Negro dreams, I hear voices knocking at the door. I see walls dripping, screams up and down the halls. Won't someone open the door for me? Won't someone schedule my sleep and don't ask no questions? Noise. Like when he took me to his home away from home place and I died, the long sought after death he'd planned for me. Yeah, Bessie he put in the bacon and it overflowed the pot. And two days later, when I was talking, I started to grin. As everyone knows, I'm still grinning. Great, amazing, fantastic. Now we're gonna read a few of Lucille Clifton's poems from her book, The Collected Poems of Lucille Clifton, 1965 to 2010. This book is thick. She, I don't know where she gets all her words from. It's crazy how many poems she's written. The first one that I'm gonna read is called Mirror. And I've never read this one, by the way. It says, one day we will look into the mirror and the great nation standing there will shake its head and frown the way babies do who are just born and can't remember why they asked for just these people, just this chance. And when we close our eyes against regret, we will be left alone in the wrong image, not understanding what we are or what we had hoped to be. So like I was telling you earlier, Lucille likes to write about women's bodies in a positive way, specifically black women's bodies. But this poem here, it's called Nude Photograph, and I think that it can appeal to all women. She says, here is the woman's soft and vulnerable body, everywhere on her turning round into another wear shadows on her promising mysterious places promising the answers to questions impossible to ask who could rest one hand here or here and not feel whatever the shape of the great hump longed for in the night a certain joy a certain yes satisfaction yes yes mm-hmm mm-hmm this next poem that I'm gonna read is one that I did bookmark that I thought was really good apparently. It doesn't have a name, but I must have bookmarked it for a reason. It says, this belief in the magic of whiteness, that it is the smooth pebble in your hand, that it is the godmother's best gift, that it explains, allows, assures, entitles, that it can sprout singular blossoms like Jack's bean and singular verandas from which to watch them rise. It is a spell 
winding round on itself, Grimm's awful fable, and it turns into Cape Town and Johannesburg as surely as the beanstalk leads to the giant's actual country where Jack lies broken at the meadow's edge and the land is in ruins. No magic, no anything. That was a good one. You can tell she was just a really sweet woman. Look at her. Just sweet, talented, and an amazing writer. You know, who doesn't want to read poetry every now and then? But there are so many others that are still here writing amazing poetry. And I think that it's important that we talk about them more and we shed light on their poetry because they exist and they're writing amazing things. With that being said, Hopefully you enjoyed hearing a little bit of poetry today and found one of these amazing poets interesting and want to read more. Celebrating Black authors and Black poets all the time, all year long, but especially during this month. I'm still reading The Vanishing Half, which was written by Britt Bennett. She's an amazing Black author. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you all so much. I hope you have an amazing rest of your day. I'll see you soon. Bye. And Tyler Simone's YouTube channel, Reading in Black, is our Arts Express Best of the Net Hotspot this week. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station. Wake up, all the builders, time to build a new land. I know we could do it if we all lend a hand. The only thing we have to do is put it in our minds. Surely things will work out, they do it every time. Just let it be The world won't get no better We gotta change it Just you and me Change it, yeah 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 Change it, yeah